As we use this season to dive into American cuisine, we continue by reviewing the culinary and scholarly work behind author Jessica B. Harris and Stephen Satterfield's High on the Hog, presented by Netflix. Posing questions of how this information will change the way we appreciate the origins of American cuisine. Returning guests Kevin, Vince, and myself will tap into questions around the physical, cultural, and historical contributions of African Americans to what is currently known as American cuisine by way of this docuseries. So there's this blending into the fourth episode. It was entitled Freedom. And I think this is a good part to do it because for me, barbecue, cooking with friends, is that sense of freedom for me. I can do whatever I want. And I'm cooking for the complete joy out of it. I'm not asking for anything in return or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously freedom in this context was a little bit different. And I was very fortunate to get uh, Jubilee, the cookbook, and read right. some of it. Yep. I wish I had read it before I saw the show. Kevin has his coffee as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because she really went into how we are, as African-Americans, pigeonholed into Southern soul food. And then, like, pretty much that's it. That That's what our culture is. And she's like, well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. So mm. there's things that I'm, I'm familiar with Latin cuisine. Yeah. Like these ingredients, avocados or something that was normal, you know? So I was blending that in and using some techniques from soul food. Like instead of you, I can't remember the dish I told you about, but uh, in the dish is uh, stale tortillas. Instead of t- tortillas, they use biscuits. Mm, yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. like just substituting those ingredients. And yeah. it was like, it's a real cool way of saying we're more than this. And this is our actual freedom. Yeah. I'm saying we're a blend of every ingredient, every ounce of food that comes through this country, we are a part of. And mm-hmm. we've had to blend it with everything that we know mm-hmm. and things yeah. that have been passed down. And I just, I, like, that part was just took me over the top because I was like, I'm home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm home. I found home right here. So The amazing thing about this book is like the, the history that she draws in on every single recipe. Yeah. There is something special about the ingredients, about the history of it, you know, everything that goes into it. It's amazing, man. Like, and then seeing her on the show, she kind of talks a lot about that, mm-hmm. you know, when they had that big dinner at the end. Precisely. And, and, you know, I, I'm a very, very big fan of Tony Chipkin Martin's just catalog of just work. I had, you know, said in our last episode, um, talking about the rice, um, when we were talking about the mammy. And so mm-hmm. he also wrote the book called The Jemima Code, um, which is a chronicle um, and a catalog of every single African-American cookbook ever written in the U.S. So just she's wow. somebody that loves black folk and our food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of sugarcoat um, that sentence in terms of her over exuberance of us and also just really kind of think giving black folk dignity isn't i think that we've always been quietly silenced mm-hmm. upon so this is us you know brian what you just said you said a lot of brilliant things but the couple of things i want to lean in upon is i feel as if i'm at home when you were talking about being on the, uh, the backyard barbecue okay? mm-hmm. now that's so incredibly important in terms of we are looking for oftentimes that feeling of comfort now, the scope and the range of you know, the backyard barbecue is, number one, there's a lot of history that goes along with it, but then there's also a whole lot of pressure. Can you live up to the expectation? Because <laughs> if you are not the blank, yep. you are going to get teased and yes. you be banned for that because people will never, ever let you let down the fact that you overcooked you know, the ribs, you, know, you, burnt the, you burnt the chicken, you know, whatever you did. Like you mm-hmm. did yeah, yeah. Yep. Got, right? And so, like, there is a lot of just um, a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure. 
generational no. pressure, I guess, right? <laughs> there is, there is, yeah, multi-generational there, pressure. I mean, you know, there is a wonderful um, Eddie Murphy skit talking all about the cookout. Oh, mm, that yeah. was so funny. You know, and we could spend so much time talking about just the importance of the cookout. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, hey, you want to eat? You want to eat? You know, yep. so many different things that kind of go along with that, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that is, I think, you know, us um, in a lot of different ways. Mm. But, you know, what Tony Chip Martin says is that we are so much more than just right We're so much more than just the soul food, you know. Um, that is certainly part of our, our heritage, but I don't think we need to be limited. Mm-hmm. No. You know, I mean, case in point, living in Los Angeles. Um, there was this great, interesting documentary. It was a short, like, um, vignette on YouTube about African American um, taco shops in the greater um, South Central kind of area, and it's just overlapping of Black folk and Latinos yeah. in the same sort of area. So, if you look at a couple of people that have really taken advantage of this from an entrepreneurial standpoint, which really continue to fall in the exact same vein of taking a look at you know Thomas Downing, taking a look at that of Hemings as well, looking at um, and I don't know this guy's. Um, real name, um, but his, you know, quote unquote, cooking stage name is all flavor, no grease. And one of the things that he's done is really make a lot of really decadent um, quesadillas. Um, he's got a couple of food trucks um, that goes around you know, Southern California area. He first started off by just slanging tacos in his driveway um, that really sort of, you know, overlap that. You know, there's another guy, um, I think his name is Mel. Um, and he has a couple of restaurants called Taco Mill instead of Taco Bell. Oh, okay. Damn. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's dope. <laughs> I really kind of overlap this idea of black folk and Latinos in terms of looking at, um, you know, food cultures, you know? So like when Tony mm-hmm. talks about using tortillas um, or rather subbing that out for biscuits, that's really kind of that overlap in terms of, you know, what you have access to, you know, living in and coming from Southern California, our access to so many more international um, people is at a higher rate than necessarily somebody maybe in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what you're around and what you're surrounded by, I think, really sort of influences so many things in terms of what you eat, your view of the world, so many different things. Right. And I love the fact that we are very diverse in so yes. many ways, shapes and forms. And we often celebrate with food. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was probably the biggest part of that episode was, you know, celebrating Juneteenth with food and and, you know, big events and stuff like that to be honest with you guys you know i'm probably one of the guilty people of not having heard or known or looked up more information about it before the last five ten years maybe i mean i was very ignorant to this entire celebration you know mostly because a lot of the celebrations that i experienced in my childhood and growing up had a lot more to do with you know latino culture and living Mm -hmm. amongst Mm -hmm. you know my own community and in socal and i think that taking that jump to learning other Mm -hmm. cultures me personally it gives me more pride in the country because i'm like look how far we've come yeah and that's the real how far we've come it's like i have the ability to learn all these different cultures that are here how my culture has been influenced by so many different cultures you Mm -hmm. know and it's it's a blessing and it's all right you know and food obviously is a thing that i did (laughs) i'll just eat anything and everything (laughs) so for me it's just like Oh, yes. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, one of the cool parts of this episode, too, was seeing him experience the black rodeos. Yes. Man, I mean, yeah, we just talked about, yeah, we talked about the food, you know, coming back from the ride that they did. Mm-hmm. But all that history and that, you know, like the, the Black Cowboy Museum. Awesome, man. That was new for me. Yeah. That was new for me, too. That was new. For real. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, just the idea and the term cowboy. Yeah. We knew that that came directly from slavery. 
I had yeah. chills. Yeah. I was like, yo. Obviously, we take for granted. So yeah. the Dallas Cowboys are basically their title. Wow. Is- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. I'm not becoming a Cowboys fan. <laughs> not happening no, never, I, I, I never have been and i won't be and i'm not anybody who loves dallas um just, you know that 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 was a very new sort of revelation um for me and i think you know the entire scope of the uh, the span of the four parts of the series i think if you were open you definitely learn something probably every 15 minutes yeah yeah at the very and that's least. something that mm-hmm. i thought was yeah. so wonderful yeah 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 there was parts where i felt like um satterfield was blown away like he was thrown back by how much <laughs> yeah. was getting thrown out he's like wait a minute what did i get myself into because yeah, it's just yeah. so these people who have like really concentrated on these moments in history and night are sharing it with them inside like, and they know every detail everything that goes in and you're just like i never thought about that i didn't know that like this is interesting and then again the centering around food makes it uh, a little more welcoming and kevin is ironically um the great anthony bourdain Mm-hmm. was one of the reasons why I was very inspired by um, talking to you guys and getting this going because he said a lot of the world's issues we could find a lot of similarities in each other if we just sit down to eat basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and that's that in a nutshell you know yeah and Kevin ironically just sent me that from the Bill Maher episode where he he actually went through and said that um and then, and that is what it is it's like we all have to eat mm-hmm. and if you take that moment you can breathe <laughs> you know yeah you will find so many similarities. You'll find so many things that we can agree on and get along with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We all love a good meal. Yep, yep. Funny thing about it is that when you're on death row, last thing, <laughs> last thing, what are you granted? Last uh, meal. Yeah. Last, last meal. meal yeah. Right? That's deep. Right. Cause you know, for your whole entire tenure while you're locked up, you have to accept orders. The only time in which you have any degrees of assertion is your second to last day on earth. And you get to figure out what exactly you want to eat. Right. Where I'm going with this is that we all can appreciate a good meal uh-huh. and we will all defer and have differences upon that last meal. Yeah. But we always agree that there's something that is going to provide nourishment and ultimately even make us happy. Right. Right? Vince, have you ever eaten something and just started laughing? I mean, I feel like one of the first times that happened to me was when you took me to crew the first time. <laughs> and I, I tell you. I know exactly what it was. It was when I had that salmon trio. The oh yeah, it was salmon. They turned the skin into a chicharron, and then the um, marinated yeah. salmon roll. It was I like when you talk dirty, Brian. <laughs> awesome. Bro, that moment I, that was one of those moments. I just bust out laughing. You know, first my eyes glazed over and I almost <laughs> fell out of my chair, and then I started laughing because it was just so crazy to think somebody could think of something mm-hmm. like that. You know. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, they did. And I think at that point, you are dealing with a very skilled artisan versus just something of that of a cook. Right. Yeah. Right. A big distinction between the two that I think we can say for another you know, episode, the differences between a chef and a cook. But when you are in those kind of moments in which you realize that somebody has thought through something beyond just how do I get this cooked? Mm-hmm. And how would I, as a person, be on the sort of driver's seat end of how is this person going to ex- enjoy this experience? That's when you know food really becomes you know oftentimes very fun. Brian, right. when have you ever eaten something and started laughing? Ooh, I think single thread. Didn't I laugh at single thread? I think I laughed a couple of times at single thread. <laughs> yeah, we but, almost cried no, a couple of times. There was there was that too. Uh, I do remember a single thread for sure. It was the oyster mushrooms. It was two oyster two 
like slithers of oyster mushrooms. It was the best mushroom I ever had in my life. Wow. And I laughed because I was like, I don't even want to know what they did to make it taste that good. Because I know oyster <laughs> mushroom tastes good, but this is special. This is There's something different about this. So um, outside of that, I can think most recently, I think it was the first time I went to crew that happened. And then when I went to charcoal with you, I got angry as I was like laughing because <laughs> I was like, you just literally... The cabbage, going back to the cabbage. If anything, we're selling the cabbage <laughs> yeah, right yeah. now. Like everyone's like, I gotta try this cabbage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Know, I get, I get, I get excited a lot. So I don't know. I get, I giggle a lot when I eat. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, me, me, me too. Um, but it's, it's a feeling and it's an emotion that isn't necessarily always, I think, thought of or associated with food. But it's a clear indication that somebody is present and somebody's actually enjoying their meal right right it's like I, I, hey when you're sitting in a fast food you know dining room people aren't necessarily laughing over the burger that they're eating they're eating it and they might be laughing based on what something it said something that they see on their phone but the consumption of the food doesn't necessarily always equate to that evocation of emotion or catharsis is the formal term for this and you know this kind of makes me still staying on the topic of freedom and i, I kind of want to shift into the freedom of restaurant owners and the business side of it mm. And this is something I've always been on the fence about, like having been in a position of running kitchens and everything else. I know customers always right. But where do we oh, draw yeah. the line between no and whatever you like? And the reason this came up was because reverting back to the first episode, Jessica B. Harris said that the enslaved would refuse slop as a form of freedom. I can say no, that I won't eat that mm. because it's not good. That was their first form of defiance and all the things going on. So going back to what I originally said, yeah. when you're owning a business and someone's saying no, where's that line of we'll just, we'll make it work for you? Or we say, bye, Felicia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you still want to stay open and you don't want to have a bad reputation. And and don't get me wrong, like as much as I hate Yelp, yeah. it is a tool that we have to be yeah. aware of. Mm-hmm. And yeah. where it used to be the old saying, you tell one person, I mean, one person doesn't like your place, they tell 50 people. No, now they tell 5,000, 50,000, yep. 500,000. Yep. It all depends on who's following them. Yeah. So now what do these restaurants do? Right, How right, do right. we help draw that line of this quote unquote democracy in restaurants? Brian, do you have a response to this question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think... Because um, you throw out a lot of questions. I'm like, man, what do you think about this? I have some deep I, questions, I, man. I yeah. Well, I think personally, um, it is a little column A, a little column B. <laughs> so yeah. there's a point where you don't want to sacrifice your integrity as an artist or as a craftsman. Okay. And you make that known. And you have to train your people how to respond to something like that. Now, I understand food allergies and things like that, obviously. But as an artist and a craftsman, you should be able to adapt to that. I'm fine with that. And it should still stay in the realm of what I'm doing. But when it gets to a point where we're doing something so outrageous and we're setting a tone that completely changes the idea of what our restaurant is, mm-hmm. that's where I kind of draw the line of like, no, nope, sorry, we're not going to be able to do that. And as much as it sucks, you just might have to take it on the chin and be like, I know that person's going to complain, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it is what it is. I have to, I have to hold on to my integrity of what I'm doing because it's already too much being sacrificed. Right. To right. get to this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Have you guys, have you been to a restaurant that will, well, have you been to a restaurant with somebody who's asked for something? No, because everybody knows not to do that with me. 
You're like, yeah. They're like, what do you think I'm I should get? Just yeah. get this. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And 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 and, and if I remember to chime here, one of the things that the late chef Charlie Trotter had said in regards to the you know massive response or the massive question or the mantra in hospitality, the customer is always right. Charlie Trotter said the exact opposite. He said, very rarely is the customer right. Mm, wow. Interestingly enough. Okay? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he had said to further unpack this, rather than just being a huge you know, middle finger to the person, one of the things that he was saying is that we at our restaurant named Charlie Trotters. I mean, I don't know, it couldn't be any more narcissistic at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, is the fact that we are professionals at this, whether it's the front of the house, servers, back of the house chefs, we have been dedicated, we've dedicated our lives to service. Now, if you sit back and let us do our thing, you're going to have an amazing time. Uh Now, when somebody, let's say, wants to be very, very particular about their evening, one thing that they had always done was try to steer somebody in the vein of what something that they had already done in-house you know, as you're, as you're going down, you know, a road, you know, from point A to point B, a quick detour, but we'll still get you back to where we want you to do because we've thought about this experience from the time you get into the time you leave. Now, when you throw in some things, things obviously get a little bit more messed up. So case in point, if somebody, he said the story um, in an interview, if somebody really wants chicken, he said that we were going to steer that person towards Poussin, young mm-hmm. chicken but it's on the menu, right? If the person is incredibly adamant about really, really wanting chicken, they're going to go to a restaurant that's down the street. They're going to buy chicken from this person. They're going to, you know, stuff it with a whole bunch of, you know, butter and truffles, and they're going to charge you an additional $150 for this. Wow. Dang. And so this leads to another point um, that I really want to make um, is the idea of food modifications too. Mm-hmm. This is an American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. That really doesn't happen globally. And so you know, one of the great um, food uh, mantras was uh, Mind of a Chef. Um, on was narrated by the late Tony Bourdain um, since, you know, they, they've ceased production. But one of the greatest episodes on it was talking about um, food modifications and basically in a nutshell, picky diners with Chef David Kinch who has a three mission star restaurant, Manresa in Los Gatos, you know, California. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he said is that there not, there's few things that give me more joy than knowing that the menus are written out before service. Everything runs cleanly. Okay. We plan everything out. Then you have a diner that walks in at their five thirty reservations. And says, oh, I forgot to tell you I'm vegan. What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> and so you have to, you know, do things on the fly, you know, for this person. Now, more that as a diner, if you are very, very particular about your meal, and this goes beyond allergies, all right? I need to make that decision. Allergies are something that every chef takes into consideration mm-hmm. and very, very sensitive to, is that you could die if you right. read it. It's literally a matter of life and death. So allergies, we take that cons- you know, very, very seriously, right? Also, yep. with regards to religious yep. uh, preferences, those are pretty non-negotiable. They're understandable, right? Um, those are easy, right? And also foreseeable. Now, when you get somebody who is incredibly particular about their meal, in terms of David Kinch flat out has heard the request, I don't eat anything that has a mother. What do you think? <laughs> well, I yeah, only yeah. eat green foods. Yeah, yeah. He's request. He's like, oh, gosh, what do I do? And so- you know, A bunch of parsley. 
Yeah, yeah you're, you're just going to eat a whole bunch of grass, you know? yeah. right? Now, when you're at a fine dining, you know, restaurant like this, which is going to, which is a multi-course meal, I don't know, it's between seven, um, nine, maybe even 10 courses, you're really sort of limited um, at that moment. And so when David Kinch, you know, is brought with these types of requests, he often asks that back to the diner, what are you really trying to experience here? Because you're all, you're in, in a nutshell sort of self-sabotaging your own is that you want to, if you want to have this much control over your meal, then you're really detracting from the craftsmanship that I have created for 30 plus years in order to create you this meal. But because you only want to eat green food, I'm just going to give you celery and, you know, shervil and you're supposed to enjoy it. And also I'm supposed to charge you X amount of dollars for this too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other infrastructure that I also have to be able to uphold. Now, one of the things that he was also talking about is if you need to be this picky with your meal, he's going to charge you extra money for it. In mm-hmm. terms of I have to deal with additional food costs because I might have to get something in special, additional labor costs because somebody has to take care of this. Who has to pick up that cost? You know, so it's really yeah. the cook uh, because you just, as I said, are very, very particular about this um, sort of, you know, change, you know, um, in the road. That's something I always wonder about, you know, like where where does the extra cost get made up? Like where in the process do you try to make that up? Because now you're disrupting the entire, you know, like system that's operating behind that wall. Yeah. And it's exactly like you said. I mean, the customer is basically trying to, at that point, create their own experience that they want to have. Yeah. It it kind of comes theoretical at that point because it's like, I mean, you can't really get down to the minute hour it took for. Yeah. Yeah. Just have to go and get everything and the new ingredients that you're adding or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I'm going to add this to the wine bill. <laughs> yeah, just throw another exactly. zero on the wine. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Lifting all the glass, wrong. Lifting yeah. all the glass now. <laughs> I will say this as someone who I myself have not been vegetarian all my life. Uh-huh. My partner is vegetarian. So I've had a lot of these experiences where we'll go to a place that we both think we're going to like and... You know, Arpen is not very, um, she doesn't hold back, you know, like if she really wants to eat there, she'll, she'll try to look beforehand and make her decision on whether or not there's going to be enough there for her to have an enjoy, you know, enjoyable experience. Mm -hmm. She has on occasion, you know, asked to replace something or asked to remove something from, from a dish. But I think as we like eat out more and more together, both of us have become more mindful of our experience with the other person. Mm. And so in that regard, I now tend to like try to steer in closer, like in her direction, because she's more likely to have something removed from a a dish than I would be, Mm. you know, I'll eat anything. Mm. Right. So for me, that's kind of like my, my little uh, compromise that I make. Mm -hmm. And I found a lot of joy in different restaurants that serve, you know, strictly vegetarian food or whatever. I have, I also have been put in some uncomfortable situations <laughs> eating out with her because, you know, when I, when you hear that, that request, that one request, you know, it'll be like, can we do that without the chicken or can we do that without the ham or something? Mm-hmm. And I look up and I see the waitress's face, face or I see the server's <laughs> face or whatever. And it's like, damn, I know exactly what he's thinking right now. Or I know exactly what she's thinking. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, there have been those situations. And I, I, I'm guilty, too, of, like, telling her, like, you're making it harder for them. I, I don't know where to, where, like, who's right. Am I right for saying that to her? Or is, does she get to have the experience? You know, I also feel bad for the dude. I but at the same time, we're customers. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. It's, it's a really tough thing 
to, it is. to deal with. And I, I don't think that you're either party's wrong in the yeah, situation. Yeah. Um, ultimately, again, it kind of goes back to the business itself mm-hmm. and establishing mm-hmm. their identity and saying, this is who we are. This is what we serve. Here's where we're, we're going to establish modifications up to. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. just holding on to that and being like, and any customer that comes in and has an issue, explain it. And if they're not happy, they can leave. Yeah, yeah. And be honest, like in every restaurant, and it could be a chef with six different restaurants. Mm-hmm. Each restaurant is its own person, basically. It's yeah. its yeah. own identity. It's going to yeah. be its own unique thing. So even if they don't do it at that one, that might give them an idea like, okay, well, you know what? Let's just open a vegan place. Yeah. We've had this so many times, like, yeah. we can do it, so let's just have a spot. Now you 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 train your service staff to be like, oh, we don't do that here, but you should check out this spot mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. there's a full, like, vegan catered menu. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's just kind of, it's a give and take. It's a lot of communication. Right. A lot of working with each other. But I think the thing I will stand behind uh, as just a chef uh, slash, I kind of call myself a retired chef. Right. Uh, Still a chef. retired star chef retired star chef yes yeah um is that we we do have to give a little bit of our leadway but we have to hold on to our integrity yeah like who are we what are we going to serve and we're going to do it to the best of our abilities every single time and if it's not going to allow us to do that then we shouldn't do it yeah 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 Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, and one thing that I will say, um, Brian, is anybody that works in hospitality, um, especially back of the house, is incredibly generous. Yes. Um, How many times have we heard about somebody's birthday? We'll give you a little something extra. Mm -hmm. You know, and and generous with not only food, but also the time as well. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, It oftentimes takes multiple days for you to enjoy your meal in terms of, let's say, a sauce, um, dry aging of things. You know, Vince, when you talk about your $120 plus steak from us, <laughs> mm-hmm, like, yeah. they just didn't yeah. go in the back, you know, just cut a piece off of a live cow and just serve it to you, okay? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, labor behind, you know, what went into that steak. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, chefs by nature are very giving of people. And I think a lot of times, as much as, you know, the hospitality back in the house wants to give you a great experience and you still want to have a you know degree of manipulation in that that's when i think at times it can really sort of hurt but you know when i think of when i listen to your and um our you know, situation um i think that the removal of something for a personal or for even a religious or even health raise reason is i think always accommodable too yeah yeah, yeah. um can i remove or sub out chicken for tofu okay just if i'm at a restaurant I don't think that's that big of a deal, okay? But when you get into those fine-tuned things of, um, uh, I want a gluten-free menu, but soy is okay, that's complete BS because you're not <laughs> actually in soy. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. And so you hear a lot of things, and in, in, in a nutshell, you're making things a lot more difficult for somebody um, than you really don't necessarily know. So that's a preference than necessarily an allergy. That's one of those sort of big kind of distinctions that I have. Yeah. When you go out, number one, you need to be able to enjoy your meal. And I think that chef, um, every restaurateur wants you to enjoy your meal because they want you to come back. So it's that between food and commerce, which is oftentimes incredibly difficult to be able to walk that fine line. Um, You know, one of the things that I also think about, Brian, is in the last analogy you talked about in terms of multiple restaurants, 
One idea that I want to throw out is does every restaurant need to cater to every single person? Mm-hmm. Are you asking me? I'm going to say no. Clearly not. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say no as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to respond to that? Because I've got a lot of, obviously, since I asked, <laughs> I have my response to that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, I say no because you can't cater to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's impossible. Um, I think. Again, it goes back to who you are as a chef, what you what you want to represent, what you want to stand behind. And, uh, you know, your restaurants are going to be a reflection of that. So do if I might want to open a steakhouse, I might want to open a smokehouse. I might want to open a vegetarian grill. I might want to open a seafood joint. That's a grill spot. I might want to open just a classic French seafood place. I can do all of that, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to have a restaurant that only serves salmon. Now I'm only I'm going to have a restaurant that only serves uh, Wagyu beef, like, and try to keep getting these different types of like niche groups mm-hmm. to yeah. come because that, it's impossible. No one, whatever niche group you get a part of, they're not eating at your place every day. Right. right it is a business. Right. Like, so you have to gather, you have to get a larger part of the population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you got to provide an experience that's kind of uh, meaningful and uh, I don't know, like, uh, exciting for the largest yeah. group of people. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, speaking to like the entrepreneurial part of this whole thing, you go into business with the expectation that you're doing something to create some level of success for yourself to Absolutely. continue your passion. Right. Yeah. And yeah. you, got, and, you and you're feeding people. Okay. You're feeding two people right now yeah. as, a, as a business owner or a restaurateur, you're feeding the public and you're feeding your staff. They, mm-hmm. you have to make money to pay them. Mm-hmm. Like so that they can eat. Yeah. You know, so Dang, you're, think about yeah, you're responsible for all of that. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sorry. I'm taking care of my staff. So if I'm doing something that's going to get, the, you know, the majority of people in to make sure that they get what they need, mm-hmm. it's got to happen. You know, so. And maybe this speaks to a, like in a large part to some of our earlier conversations, like in the first episode about capitalism and how that's influenced people's mm-hmm. mentality with, you know, the customer believing that they deserve everything mm-hmm. i mean what's the mcdonald's thing i have it your way Hell yeah you know i mean like instilling that level of what is it entitlement called? yeah entitlement. entitlement yeah in people from the day they're they're born yeah it has a huge impact on all industries because everybody will mm-hmm. grow up feeling like you know i, I should get any choice i want i guess i you never got I mean? that because mom <laughs> definitely said you were eating this <laughs> It was like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's either that or you're going hungry. For sure, yeah. <laughs> no, she definitely. Yeah, and then I think you know one of the things about the entitlement, which is so sad, is that it also blends on over into abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. for this forty-eight dollars steak means I get to treat you any way that I can because I right. built right. And so with the restaurant industry still being crippled and still trying to just tread water, right? You're seeing a very demanding. Um, clientele um that is frustrated because a food's co- it's taking longer for food to come out not seeing nearly as many choices um and it's really not being as patient with mm-hmm. restaurants as they could be and being a little more compassionate a little more um, sympathetic right. I think, you know, for the entire restaurant industry if we had people that were just a little bit more slightly compassionate and you thought about how much work went into making your food and making you happy then i think the world would be a lot better place um, I think everybody should work service at least once in your life mm-hmm. to, to know exactly what it feels like in order for you to make all those 15 different modifications just because you think that you can and see how does that feel. 
If you do that and you continue to do that, well, actually, you know, if you work service once and you do that, you might say, you know what? I might be a little more compassionate. Amen. um, The world just simply needs a little more compassion right now. This is over a bowl. Definitely. Okay. Um, But the whole entire dining experience has really changed a lot in the in the last you know ten fifteen years in terms of social media. How much of an education do you get? Like you had said, um, Vince, with Arpana, I look at the menu beforehand. I might look at social media. What am I getting myself into before I invest my money? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now that takes away a lot of certain things, you know, um, because I think dining, you know, pre-internet um, out was a very different sort of experience. Michelin Guide um, and any sort of, you know, food rating system had a different sort of gravity because I didn't know what to expect. I just had to go on this, you know, you know, your word, um, so to speak. And so now right, right, yeah. I look at photographs of, you know, um, a three mission star meal, or, you know, I'm taking Michelin now, I'm out of it. If any sort of, let's say five star review on a place and I get there and it's less than five stars, then I'm really obviously going to be disappointed, you know, and that's really unfair to the people who work day in and day out. So just really kind of busting, you know, um, their butts every single day. Um, going back to the question that I opened up, do we need to cater? Does every restaurant need to cater to everybody? Absolutely not. There are billions of opportunities for you to make up your mind about what you want to eat and when do you want to eat it, right? Case in point, when I go into a vegan restaurant, I don't expect to have a steak. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I mean, why would you? When, as, as a vegetarian or a vegan, when I go into Ruth's Chris, now I see vegetarian options. I'm like, you really don't want to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, at, at times, you know, am I compromised to doing this based on I need to get as many butts in the seats as I quite possibly can in order for me to be able to pay this rent in order to be able to kind of pay my staff? And then unfortunately, the quality oftentimes can go down is that if it doesn't have a vegetarian sort of you know, idea in mind, you're probably going to get a salad with some side of grilled vegetables and that's about it. Not a whole lot of thought is kind of being going to sort of you know, be placed into it. You know, so like when I look at the menu for like the cheesecake factory, when your menu has to be spiral bound and that big, you are covering every single person's needs. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's not always the best food. It's just, you know what, you got to find something that kind of fits, you know, within your own individual sort of wheelhouse. Um, and we're that place for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, as we wrap this up, as we always do, it's always yeah. someone's got to take home a to-go plate. We all got to, you know, get the foil out. Um, <laughs> so my concluding question for everybody is through this entire series and these conversations and everything that we've done, um, kind of recapping this marvelous work, what did you get high on? Like, What was it, the things that just really stood out? And that you're gonna, we all want to take away. I think for me personally, um, one of the most, one of the moving parts of the show was when they had the recording of Laura Spalley, and this was 1941. So less than a hundred years ago, there was still she was um, enslaved mm-hmm. as a child, still had memories mm-hmm. of Juneteenth. Now that's less than a hundred years ago that this way was still present and that someone had a direct memory of this time, this time in American history, taking that and then moving forward and saying all through me personally, I felt like the black culture and history has been so tragic and it's always been like this place of poverty and, you know, just grinding it out and all of this stuff. This 
these conversations about food and it being able to endure and it still be here. And then, you know, seeing these histories and, and identity basically come out, um, it was liberating. Like it was, it, it gave me such a great sense of pride and it was beautiful. It's like this beauty in all the chaos. Um, it's always when you're cooking, cooking is a language and you're always trying to find your voice in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was one of the first times I was like, there's the voice. Mm-hmm. Now there's more. There's so much more. Because I felt that there's been a, in a full lack of better words, and I'm also generalizing a little bit, but not a lot of people, when they ask me, what do I like cooking? Or what do you do? I always get this like thrown back look when I start talking about all the different cuisines that I've learned and that I, you know, I have some kind of, you know, lingering. But I also mm-hmm. go and say, I, I'm from the South, though. Mm-hmm. So my roots are there. It starts there. Then it branches out into all these different cuisines. Um, my teaching or my uh, classical training is French. Mm-hmm. So this was like everything for me. <laughs> That's me. That's me right there. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. They're really diving into like the things that I love about food. So I, I just got really excited. And like now moving forward, I'm, I'm on like such a different path of like scholarship, I guess you could call it, for... Mm-hmm cookbooks and cuisine and things because this is a world that I just never paid attention, like just never thought about, never paid attention to. And so now I'm like, no, wait a minute. Time to draw, come back a little bit. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's, let's start really looking at this and diving into it a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, you want to, you want to go ahead, go ahead. Or you, I, can go. I talk too much. Go ahead, man. <laughs> <laughs> talk too much. Uh, I think I took quite a bit from it and there was a, a point I think we mentioned this on one of the on the last part was uh, talking about the interview uh, he had with David Chang afterwards, uh, Satterfield, yeah, and him. Well, basically all of them, in you know, uh, talking about how anybody going into the show will be able to pull some meaning from it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. the history of it, whether it's your connection with the food specifically. I think the gravity of the conversations that are had in this show are so impactful and they're so packed with history that you have no choice but like to keep listening every episode it's like and every story you just have to keep listening and you get so much more out of every single interview and i think to know that some of these places are still around you know like and they're maybe even like local to you you can Mm -hmm. go see them Mm -hmm. is just like a icing on top but some of the more i think important moments for me in the show was probably in the very beginning when they go to africa and then Mm -hmm. they have that interchange between um people living there and people you know doing this entirely different culinary thing Mm -hmm. in a whole entire different country and tracing the roots you know to the farthest point you know where they begin to diverge um Mm -hmm. that's just amazing man and i think what you had talked about with uh the ex-slave interview they did something like that on the 1619 project Mm -hmm. and i remember Mm -hmm. going back to that listening to that you know with this show and that and that show that podcast hearing those interviews man they almost bring you to tears dude because you hear all the pain and the sorrow in these people's voices you hear the history and to have them basically frozen in time on this recording mm. man it just lends so much more weight you know to the experience of watching the show so yeah i, I would say I, I got quite a bit I yeah good observation guys um, if I might be able to close this out, so um, what, what did I get high on in terms of By all means, please put the icing on the cake for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, with, with a lot of contemporary conversations about representation and oftentimes the lack thereof, 
in various sort of forms um, in, in, in contemporary conversations. And one of the things that we often find is lack of representation of African and African-Americans in the presence of our food here in the continental U.S. I, growing up, had never visually seen, aside from maybe like one person on television, Miss um, Verdame Grosner on PBS that was cooking on TV. Right. Like, I mean, think about growing up, like how many times did you see an African-American person cooking on television? Right. Yeah. Um, very, very, very rarely was that. And they were always cooking the same thing. Yeah. And just the narrative of just all we know how to do is make fried chicken mm-hmm. and how that has been beaten into our nation um, over and over and over again. You associate black folk with fried chicken. Right. You know, Vince, when you talked about you not knowing a whole lot about Juneteenth, um, number one, don't feel bad about that because that's your fault. Right. It's the media's fault for keeping it from you. Nobody ever thought it was important enough to kind of share that story with you. Therefore, you are in the closet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That analogy in terms of taking a look at so many different stories that were unpacked by Satterfield. And, you know, when I looked at him being the star of the show, unpacking so many stories that have been historically silenced. Now, black folk with our food have now reached a state of a platform in which now we get to stand behind the megaphone where historically we've always been historically silenced as this stuff has not been incredibly important for us. And so when you look at the dignity that he and his entire crew have been able to provide for us, Brian, when you said that's me, that was deep because I felt the exact same way because I had never seen myself mm-hmm. in these type of establishments. The cinematography of how beautiful this was from a predominantly all black cast was also important as well. The scene in which um, Satterfield and Michael Twitty um, hold out their hands and talk about tasting, that was dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was dope. Yeah, It was dope because as, as Michael Twitty asked him, who taught you that? <laughs> and it was somebody that was passed down. And you know, Twitty's assertion was somebody had to do that to teach you the muscle memory in order to be able to learn how to taste from your hands or for him, the back of your hand. For me, I was tasting the palm of my hand, never tasting on the back of my hand, which was something that was a little bit different. But I knew that you definitely don't put your mouth on that spoon. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah, is yeah. something that's also very sacred as well. Right. And so that scene in and of itself was so incredibly black and beautiful at that moment that there was a certain degree of identification that I had with them that I think that if somebody who wasn't black was editing this, might have cut that out. Mm, yeah. Picked up on that. Okay? Yeah. But that's so incredibly important, I think, you know, just not only for their own relationship on camera, but also from the larger part of the larger conversations of where I think High on the Hog really sort of took us. Um, it was just so beautiful just to see us, the food, the history, and for us to be on an international stage and given the opportunity to tell our own stories. Right. It was absolutely brilliant, beautiful, and flat out priceless. I'm going to end with the last phrase. Michael Tweedy said at uh, a TED Talk. He gave tribute to the first caterers, who was the enslaved Africans. Mm. And he said that it's still, it's still with us today, mm. their work and everything. That in, I can't remember what language it was exactly, but the phrase eat was yame. So when that enslaved woman would tell the children that she was looking over to eat, she would say yame. Mm. Yame, which mm. would transfer to yummy. Mm. So they're still here with us today, even in our language. Thank you for joining us. For bites of each episode and a taste of future discussions, subscribe to us on YouTube at Pod-Luck. We hope you were well fed on this journey of unpacking the world through food. Hey.